be still my soul. The basic presumption under that is commanding ourselves to trust and to listen and to obey. But it says, be still my soul, a commandment to myself. And the rest of that song says, be still my soul. Why? Because we know the sovereign Lord, because we know the God who has done these things. So be still my soul. And that's the thing that the psalmist is often talking about. Today, we are going to turn to Psalm 75. If you would join me there, it is on page 456 in the Bibles presented in the Seabacks. Psalm 75, to the choir master, according to Do Not Destroy, a psalm of Asaph, a song. We give thanks to you, O God. We give thanks, for your name is near. We recount your wondrous deeds. At the set time that I appoint, I will judge with equity when the earth totters and all its inhabitants. It is I who keep steady its pillars. Selah. I say to the boastful, do not boast. And to the wicked, do not lift up your horn. Do not lift up your horn on high or speak with haughty neck. For not from the east or from the west and not from the wilderness comes lifting up. But it is God who executes judgment, putting down one and lifting up another. For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours out from it. And all of the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. But I will declare it forever. I will sing praises to the God of Jacob. All the horns of the wicked I will cut off. But the horns of the righteous shall be lifted up. Lord, we pray this morning that you would let us know you better. That we might bring worship to you and we might bring glory to your name. Because of who you are. And, Lord, that you would still our souls uh, because we can trust in you. Lord, we pray that you would speak now through your words. Give me the words to speak. Uh, Lord, give us tender and understanding hearts that we might know you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This psalm begins with an exhortation. And encouragement. It starts out with telling us as a body to give thanks to God. Now, it's interesting though that, the, that this psalm is very clear that it's not simply a lyrical poem or a writing of uh, an individual, but it's intended as a song. It's intended as something for the body to join together in and to sing. Now, we've sung a number of songs this morning, and the, oftentimes the point of those songs is for us to remind ourselves of who God is and to bring glory to his name and to praise him for who he is. And it's an opportunity for us to encourage each other to drink in the glory of God and to give him glory so here we have the author of Psalm 75 saying, this is a song. 
meaning it is to be sung. It is to be joined together as a body to worship God. Why does he say that? He gives us two reasons. The psalmist tells us up front, we give thanks to you, God, because your name is near. That's the first reason. Now, that's something that's pretty spectacular. And we'll talk about why Psalm 75 is structured the way it is in a second. And we'll see why this is such an incredible statement. But as we look through the history of Israel, we see a distinction among the people of Israel who this song is written for and every other nation around them. When we talk about Israel, we have to even go back to Genesis 2. When we talk about Adam and Eve being created and walking with God in the garden. Now, talk about being near to God, walking with him in the garden that he has created is as close as you can come. You're there with him in his presence, constantly and consistently, walking with him, speaking with him. But Adam and Eve chose to reject God's commandments, to reject his command to not eat of a single tree in the garden. And they chose to go their own way. Because of that, God put Adam and Eve out of the garden. Now, don't gloss over that. Putting Adam and Eve out of the garden meant that he was putting them out of his presence. That they were no longer allowed to walk with him on a daily basis. That they were no longer allowed to be consistently in his presence. Thankfully, that's not the end of the story. Only the very, very beginning for us. God didn't remove his presence from Adam and Eve. Instead, he carried them forward. And then down the line in history, he actually brought forward a people for himself through Abraham and through Isaac and through Jacob. Now, we'll focus a little bit more on the people that God brought forward through Jacob or through Israel. God actually, as we, if you recall, the Israelites were put into uh, basically bondage, servanthood in Egypt. But God did not leave them to their own way. And he did not leave them in servanthood or bondage. In fact, he called them out of Egypt. But he did so by making his presence known to Moses through the burning bush. And that was, in a way, a small precursor of showing that he would make his presence known to Israel. In fact, when God brought Israel out of Egypt, he made it clear to them that his presence would be with them. As he brought them across the Red Sea, he led them by a pillar of fire at night and a pillar of cloud during the day showing them that he was with them. After that, 
in the desert, after, even after Israel had rejected God's plan for them by turning away from the promised land, claiming that they knew better than God, God still told Israel, you are my people. They, in that, he gave Moses very clear instructions to build a tent, to build a tabernacle. And God put his presence in the tabernacle so that the people of Israel could see not just a physical reminder of God's presence, but they could see the very place that his presence dwelt with them. When he had brought them into the promised land, and after a number of generations, he had King Solomon build a temple. Though he continued in that cloth or in that goatskin tent for a time, he then had Solomon build a temple, and into that temple he placed his presence, so that he was shown to be with the people of Israel. There's a difference, though, between Israel and every other nation. If you look at the nations around them, all of them bowed down and worshipped to idols of stone, of wood, of precious metals, things that couldn't place themselves there, that actually required the hands of craftsmen to create and to present. not a God that's very near. Actually, it's not a God that's near at all. But God placed his presence with the people of Israel. And the psalmist here is encouraging the singers of this song to rejoice because God has put his name with the people so that they would know him and that the world would know that the living God was with the people of Israel. It meant that he is there, that he is with his people in the midst of their troubles, in the midst of their day-to-day, in the midst of who they are. When they call upon him, he is there, and they are not alone. He has not abandoned them, even in the very moment, as we'll see, that he is judging them. Now, the psalmist goes on to give another reason that we should thank God and that we should worship him. He says, rejoice, worship him for his wondrous deeds. Now, we just read through the entire psalm, and other psalmists go in and they talk about the deeds that God has done for Israel. They talk about the progression from Egypt and through the Red Sea and into the desert, providing them with food and water and the clothing and everything else that they needed in that time. They talk about God bringing them into the promised land and establishing his authority. They talk about him giving the temple and the law and giving them leaders to guide them to himself. But this psalmist, though those things would certainly have come to mind for the singers of this song, and it would have given a foundation for what he's talking about. These historical deeds are not what this psalmist focuses on. Instead, he brings the singers to worship God 
by pointing to his wondrous deeds in his nature as a judge. He calls the Israelites and us today to have faith in and build our hope upon God because he is judge. Now the response to that is a declaration, as we see here, a declaration by God to the Israelites. And that may sound a little bit strange to say worship God for his wondrous deeds and then go into this declaration by God where he says, at the set time that I appoint, I will judge with equity. When the earth totters and all its inhabitants, it is I who keep steady its pillars. I say to the boastful, do not boast, and to the wicked, do not lift up your horn. Do not lift up your horn on high or speak with haughty neck. Now, just a little bit more of a brief history of Israel. When God brought the Israelites into the promised land, he made a promise to them that they would be blessed. But, as we see in Deuteronomy 28.15, if you do not obey the Lord your God to observe to do all his commandments and his statutes with which I charge you today, that all these curses will come upon you and overtake you. And Deuteronomy 28 first goes through a section of saying, if you follow the Lord, if you follow his commandments and do what he tells you, then you will be blessed. You will be richly established in the land. You will have families and you will have provisions. You will have what you need. But... If you don't follow the Lord, it goes on to list a series of curses that says, basically, you will lose your families, you will lose your livestock, you will lose your prosperity, you will lose all of these things. In fact, it actually tracks, in a way, with the judgments that were brought against Egypt. But it comes with a final curse as well. Verse 36 the Lord will bring you and your king, whom you set over you, to a nation which neither you nor your fathers have known. And there you shall serve other gods, wood and stone. God promises that Israel would actually lose their land in judgment for failing if they were to fail to follow his commandments. But in fact, we do know that Israel did fall away that Israel turned against the commands of the Lord. And time after time, as we can see throughout the history of Israel, starting with the judges and eventually under the, the king that, and sidebar on this, Moses prophesied in Deuteronomy that Israel would demand a king to be set over them. We don't see that for several generations. But in Samuel, in 1 Samuel, we see that the Israelites start to demand that God give them a king to set over them, not so that they might follow God, but so that they might look like the nations around them. And in fact, the prophesied king that, that Moses was talking about was even Israel's rejection of God, rejection of his plan.
So what we see is that the Lord would strike them with pestilence and famine or military failures. And the people would, as we see in Judges and throughout First and Second Kings, the people would often be called out because of these failures. They would feel their suffering and they would turn to God and repent. And the Lord would bring them back to himself. He would provide either a prophet or a judge or a good king that would turn them back so that they would repent uh, and turn to the Lord. But then we saw them fall away again to worshiping other gods and rejecting the Lord's commandments. So the Lord fulfilled his promises. The Lord first brought the Assyrians to attack what we know as the northern kingdom. The two, the 12 tribes of Israel had split into two kingdoms because of the nature of the, the kings that they had established over them. There was the northern kingdom of Israel that was made up of 10 tribes, and there was a southern kingdom of Judah, which was made up of two tribes. The Lord brought the Assyrians who attacked and crushed the northern kingdom of Israel and carried them off into exile. Now, Judah, so the northern, Israel, northern kingdom of Israel, had a line of evil kings. It was a consistent line of evil kings. The southern kingdom of Judah had some ups and downs. They had some good kings. They had some evil kings. And, and the Lord delayed his judgment on Judah, but ultimately brought the Babylonians, to attack and to destroy the southern kingdom of Judah as well and carry them off into exile. So why all of this background? Well, some scholars actually consider that Psalm 75 is a connection to Psalm 74. We heard, um, if you recall, Pastor Joshua preached on Psalm 74 uh, a few weeks ago, in the middle of December. And what we saw in Psalm 74 is that the psalmist is actually crying out to God to look at what the Babylonians are doing to his people, to see that the glory of his name is being assaulted by an ungodly people. And the, the psalmist calls out and says, Arise, O God, defend your cause. Remember how the foolish scoff at you all day. Do not forget the clamor of your foes, the uproar of those who rise against you, which goes up continually. Now, the, the, the lament in Psalm 74 is to say, God, look at what they're doing to your name. Don't you see, by allowing them to attack your people, you are allowing them to attack your name? But Psalm 75 actually looks to be a response to Psalm 74. And in that, it's an assurance to God's people that he will judge the nations and the proud. He exhorts them to hold on to him. He's saying in this, do you not know that I am the one who brought this to pass? Meaning the Babylonians coming into Judah. 
that it is a judgment foretold by Moses in Deuteronomy. And he reminds the singers of the psalm that he is sovereign over all of these things. And yet, he encourages their lament, saying, basically, you have come to the right place. You are right to call on me because I am both the one who brought this discipline about, this judgment about, and the one who will bring it to an end. Hold fast to me. Bring your lament. Bring your prayers to me. Cry to me for vindication and deliverance. This is God's statement in Psalm 75 to the Israelites who are crying out for deliverance in Psalm 74. Now, we as human beings tend to want justice now. Right now. For an injustice to be to have taken place, if an injustice were to happen, to have it taken care of this moment. For the police to show up when robbery happens. For the insurance company to call right back and say, we're going to take care of your car. We know that there was an accident. We're going to get this done and over with. Or we want the person that hurt us to come immediately and fix it. To be here right now. Or, if we're the person who hurt somebody, we want them to forgive us immediately. And have everything go back to the way that it was as soon as possible. You know, it is good for us to seek justice. And we should use every means in our disposal to do so. But when that justice doesn't happen when we want it to, or doesn't come even in our lifetime, God here is reminding us that he is sovereign even over that. You know, in a pretty somber moment, Last June, a 101-year-old man was convicted of being an accessory to thousands of murders and sentenced to five years in prison for the allegations that he was an SS guard at the Sachsenhausen concentration camp just outside of Berlin. Now, that's 77 years after the discovery of those camps by Allied forces. That's 77 years after the individuals who survived those camps were given their freedom back. Now, that's a long time to wait for justice. But you know what? God's statement here is not an equivocation. It's not a justice might come. Or that justice is a possibility. It is a declaration. He 
will judge. There is no if in his statement. But when he does, he will judge with equity, meaning with full fairness, with full understanding, even-handedly and impartially. But let's take a quick step back. Give a quick definition to justice. So justice is the declaration or the holding accountable of an individual or their actions to the law. In this case, I know we often uh, look at, at law and say, oh, is it good? Is it bad? Is it, is it something that I can support? Is it, is, there, is it worthwhile? But we're not talking about human law in this case. In fact, we are talking about God's law that he established. But did you notice also in this passage that God's being judge also goes hand in hand with his sovereignty? You know, immediately after stating that he ordains the time of judgment, he reminds the singers of the psalm that when everything else seems to be going awry, he is still in control. Just a reminder, in this, he is speaking to the people of Judah in the middle of the Babylonian occupation and exile. Jeremiah 25, actually 2511, describes this as the, the whole land becoming a ruin and a waste. Yet here, God exhorts the people to trust firmly in him because he holds the pillars of the earth. You know, it's, it's like that moment when you're on an airplane and you're flying through clear blue skies and everything is smooth, and then suddenly turbulence hits. And the plane is all over the place. It's going up and down and sideways, and oh, that You know that feeling in your stomach where the plane just drops and your stomach jumps? You know, if you grab on tightly to the armrest next to you and just hold on for dear life, or even the hand of the person next to you to the point where it turns purple, you know, the reality is you're only holding on to the very thing that is being thrown around. You're only holding on to the seat that's part of the plane that's being tossed to and fro. If the plane fails... So does that seat that you're holding on to. But if the manufacturer has tested the airframe and has built it to withstand the turbulence and the pilot has been trained on how to handle it, then the plane is going to get through it just fine. And so will your seat. Here, the creator of the world is saying that when the world seems to be tipping off its proverbial axis, he is the one who is holding it in place. Hold fast to him, not to the kings of this world. We see so many examples of this today. As we look around the world on the Lord's Day, 
we have so many brothers and sisters who are struggling to even have the opportunity to gather together to worship this God. Now, there, I saw, there was a posting on social media a few weeks back of a pastor in India during a gathering of his church who was pulled out and beaten in front of his church building by a mob who reject God. You know, there are underground churches in places in this world where if they're discovered, that is the end of their life. There are places where Christians are forced to live outside of community. They're forced to live in undesirable places. There are, still, there are Christians today who on their truck from their house to their church are walking through minefields because it's the only place that they are allowed to live. And there are those who hold desperately to a few pages of Scripture, knowing that if they're caught with God's revelation to us, that there is nothing for them, that their life is the cost. But God is telling us, is exhorting these brothers and sisters to hold fast to him. That judgment is coming that those who go against him will be judged. So if you're faithful to him, the hope and the, the great exhortation is to hold fast because he will make it right. And the thing is, all of those kings, all of those Rulers, they have no claim to that authority. They have no claim to any right and in fact, they should not make any claim to such authority. God goes on here to warn the boastful and the wicked that it would have been easier, it would have been very easy, and it was very easy, for Nebuchadnezzar to claim that he conquered the Middle East, or for Alexander the Great to claim that he conquered the world, or for Hannibal to boast at Canaan. Or for Nick Folk to boast in Minneapolis. But you know what? The description of raising your horn is a picture of claiming authority or power or praise for yourself. To lift up your own horn is an act of pride, making claim to your own glory. But it is God here who is claiming to set the course of history whether it be in the midst of a period where he has yet to bring judgment 
or during, as we see here, during judgment itself. Now, let's take another quick step back and, and consider for a second what it means for God to be judge. You know, it means that he is the one who declares who is wicked and who is righteous. He is the one who hands down the judgment. If you want to read further on that, look to Ecclesiastes 3.17. But being a judge isn't simply to sit there and listen. Being a judge means to pronounce a sentence. It also means to carry out that sentence. Now, just as God told the Israelites that they would face consequences for not following his law, it, he made that pronouncement over and over and over again, that they had broken his law. But he also told them what the sentence would be. Then he brought the Assyrians. Then he brought the Babylonians. You know, a judge doesn't just pronounce guilt. Now, don't lose this point. A judge also pronounces innocence, justification. You know, had Israel followed God's commands, God's pronouncement would have been, you are righteous. And the blessings that were described in Deuteronomy would have come with that. And he would have provided for them. You know, with our contemporary American court system, we can often miss the full extent of this. In our idea, we think about the court system where it's a jury sitting in a jury box, listening to evidence that hands down the verdict of guilty or innocent. And then the judge sentences those who are found guilty. But here, it is God that weighs the evidence and compares it to the law. Now, as a reminder, we already talked about this, but that law is God's law that he established. First, the commandment that he gave to Adam and Eve in the garden, and then the law that he gave through Moses. You see, that exposes a problem. And we'll return to that problem in a second. Now, coming back to the psalm, after God has made his declaration, the psalmist goes on and talks about what that means, explains a little bit more about that, and gives a response to that. Basically, the psalmist goes to say, look to God and do not put your hope in the things of this world. Now, the psalmist here is reinforcing that warning from above. Do not be haughty. Do not be prideful. Do not lift your own horn because it is God who judges. And God judges with equity, meaning that God is an omniscient God, meaning he knows all things. So when he judges, 
He doesn't judge like our court system today, which requires that evidence be presented to the jury, that the attorneys get to argue back and forth about which evidence goes in and which evidence doesn't get get to go in, whether the evidence was collected appropriately or not. God knows all things, which means when he judges, he judges with perfect understanding and perfect knowledge. There is no equivocation. There is no argument about what did or did not happen. He knows that. So here, the psalmist is reinforcing that warning that God judge, judges perfectly. And that we, in light of that, should act with humility. You know, pride is self-aggrandizing, which means gaining to ourselves power, knowledge, wealth, giving it to ourselves, claiming it for ourselves. But that is by nature a rejection of God. It's saying that I am sufficient, that I can create my, myself, I can do for myself all things, but that is saying that there is no need for God, that there is nothing that God can provide for me. It is saying that there is something about me or something that I can find that gives me the right to lift myself up. Now, the psalmist here warns that there is nothing in this world that can, that can lift up or bring down. You know, he talks about, from, for not from the east or from the west and not from the wilderness comes lifting up, but it is God who executes judgment, putting one down one and lifting up an, an, another. You know, it's not our wealth. It's not our intellect, not our relationships, not our politics, not even our good deeds or showing up at church on Sundays. It's not our spiritualism. It's not even our posts on social media. Only God can do so. To make a claim on anything else is to reject God. Why does this matter? Verse 8 of the psalm begins with the word for. Why should we look to God for lifting up and putting down for or because. For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. And the cup of foaming wine in the Lord's hand is elsewhere described as the cup of his wrath. This cup is described as the consequence of a people's rejection of God. 
If you want to dive more into this or to have a, a conversation over lunch about what this means, you can look at Jeremiah 25 or Isaiah 51, verse 17 and 22, or Ezekiel chapter 23, verses 28 through 34, or Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 16. And in fact, even the psalm that we read this morning as a body, Psalm 60, talks about the people of Israel being given a cup of wine that caused them to stagger. We see the same picture here. That is the cup of God's wrath, meaning the judgment that he will pour out for people's rejection of him. I want to be very careful here. This is a shall statement. And if you know anything about the law, there's a clear distinction between a may or might statement and a shall statement. A may statement, you may go to work or you may not stop at a specific spot, or you may do such and such, means that there's discretion. It allows for variance, or if something doesn't happen, then you might do this, or if this happens, you may do that. So it's a possibility. If certain things happen, then you can do this, or, or it's allowable to do this. That's very different than a shout statement. A shall statement is unequivocal. It is a must. It is a this will occur. So I want to reiterate. This here is a shall statement. The wicked shall, not might, not could, not maybe. The wicked shall drink, and not just drink, but shall drain it down to the dregs, shall, shall fully empty it. I know that that sounds a bit heavy right now, and it should, that is a big statement. But we also here come to the full extent of the problem that I mentioned earlier. The wicked shall drink the cup of God's wrath. But who are the wicked? Romans 3, 10 through 12 tells us, None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Do you see the problem? 
the wicked shall drink the cup of God's wrath. Romans 3 says, I am the wicked. Romans 3 says, you are the wicked. So then how can the psalmist then say in verse 10, but the horns of the righteous shall shall be lifted up? Do you see the problem? How can the horns of the righteous be lifted up if there are no righteous? If no one is righteous? Because God sent his son to drink that cup of God's wrath for us. Jesus came and he lived that life, the perfect life according to God's law. But it didn't end there. He, being perfect without blemish, chose to go to the cross for us. And on the cross, he drank the cup of God's wrath fully and completely to the very dregs and there, dying in our place. He emptied it. And God showed that that was sufficient and good by raising him from the dead on the third day. God now offers us a different cup. He offers us the cup of Christ's blood that washes us clean. Now, brother and sister, if you are in Christ, you drink from this new cup. And the old The cup of God's wrath is empty. He has justified you. Meaning that the judge declares righteous. As we talked about, a a judge doesn't just declare guilt. He also declares innocent. But here, he declares us justified. Though Christ was innocent, he bore our sins and drank the cup of God's wrath for us. So now that God if we are in Christ, will declare us justified, meaning that the law no longer has anything over us. Now, my non-Christian friend, if you are not a believer, I'm so glad that you're here with us today. But the cup of God's wrath is in front of you. And apart from Christ, You will drink it. Come and drink deeply of Christ. Come to the cup that is offered to you. It is Christ's blood that washes us clean.
Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. So why does it give us hope that God is judge? Why does it give us hope that God is sovereign? Why should we rejoice that God judges? First, it reminds us that God is sovereign. That he is in control. That his authority is the only authority. And that we can trust him, even along with our brothers and sisters who struggle each Lord's Day and many of the days in between to gather to worship God. We know that God is in control. That he is sovereign. Second, he keeps his promises. We saw that God kept his promise to Israel. To judge them. But he also kept his promise that we saw, that we see here in Psalm 75, that he will lift up the horns of the righteous. He kept his promise by sending his son so that we might be counted righteous. So that he has the righteous whose horns he can lift up. He has done it. He keeps his promises. Third, sin will not go unpunished. It is clear here that Israel was punished for its sins, for rejecting God. God brought Assyria to judge the northern kingdom. God brought Babylon to judge the southern kingdom. But there's a little piece of history in there too. God used Babylon to judge Assyria. God used Babylon to destroy Assyria. And we, can, we don't have time to go into this, but Scripture actually says that God used Babylon for his purposes to judge Assyria for their sin against God's people. And then God judged Babylon. Jeremiah 51.6 Flee from the midst of Babylon and each of you save his life. Do not be destroyed in her punishment for this is the Lord's time of vengeance. He is going to render recompense to her. God destroyed Babylon just like he destroyed Assyria. He brought the Medo-Persians in who took over and were God's judgment on the Babylonians. But then God also fulfilled another promise. He used the Medo-Persians to actually return the exiles of Judah to Jerusalem. God will not leave sin unpunished. Fourth, why does this give hope? Because this is all for the glory of his name. 
God is good. And it should give us great joy that a good God who would give himself for us would raise his own banner, would raise his own name, that people would bring him glory. So let us remind each other of God's sovereignty, of our hope that he perfectly judges sin, and his great mercy and grace in his son drinking the cup of his wrath on our behalf. And finally, let us encourage each other to turn in prayer to God, to call upon God, to call for his judgment and his display of his glory through his sovereignty. He hears the prayers of his people. As we saw, God responds, like he did here in Psalm 75, to the lament of his people that we saw in Psalm 74. God is a good judge. And he hears our prayers. Let me leave you with this. Luke 18, 1 through 8. And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. He said, in a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, Give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused. But afterward he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice, so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? God is the perfect judge. Call on him for justice. Turn to him for justification. Lord, we pray that you would cause us to call on you for justice, Lord, that you would mete out your justice. Lord, those, that those who re reject you, Lord, that they would not drink the cup of your wrath, but they would submit themselves to you and that they would drink freely of the cup of Christ's blood who saves us. Lord, we do pray that you would mete out justice against those who reject you, um, Lord, so that they would know the glory of your name and that we might bring praise and honor and glory to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.